There is a chance peace will come in your life, sings the iconic voice of Melody Safka. We here at Solutions of Violence, as well as our guest today, David Cochran, also believe there is a chance peace will come in all of our lives. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5 FM, and you're listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is a subcommittee of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. I'm Jamie McMillan, here with co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks-Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. Views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. We want you to share your views with us by sending us an email to solutionstoviolence18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. If you enjoyed any of our other programs, we're pretty sure you're going to enjoy our broadcast today because it's our pleasure to have our guest, Dr. David Cochran. David Cochran grew up in Lubbock, Texas. His BA is from Drew University in New Jersey, and his MA and PhD are from University of Maryland. He and his wife, Kristen, have two sons. David pursues hobbies in architecture, whiskey, and walking, all in moderation. Dave has taught in the politics program at Loras College in Dubuque, Iowa, since 1996, offering a range of courses primarily in the areas of political thought and American politics. His primary teaching and research areas are religion, race, and ethnicity in American politics, political thought, war and peace, and Irish studies. In addition to a wide array of articles and book chapters, he has published five books, most recently as author of Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War, and as editor with his colleague John Waldmere for the Catholic Church in Ireland today. In addition to teaching, Dave is co-director of the Peace and Justice Minor, and the director of the Archbishop Lucera Center for Catholic Intellectual and Spiritual Life. Welcome, Dr. Conkren, to Solutions to Violence. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You're a good distance from Lubbock, Texas, Dr. Cochran. What would you say brought you to the topics of study and teaching political thought, American politics, war and peace? Well, it does kind of go back to my childhood growing up in Lubbock. My family was uh, very politically aware, politically oriented. Both my parents were involved in peace and justice work as I was growing up. And so I had them in a circle of friends to kind of uh, shape me, form me. Helped that my father also is a, uh, was, he's now retired, a uh, professor of politics. So it kind of was a family tradition for me coming up. And so I've taken it with me now for my career, even though I'm a long way from Lubbock, Texas, it's still part of my uh, my upbringing. So David, your resume states you, you've been involved in Irish studies. How do Irish studies fit into political thought, American politics, war and peace? Yeah, that's a good question. I teach at Loras College, which is a small liberal arts college, and we are kind of generalists. Most of us who teach there. So there's only three people in my program. So we kind of tend to cover lots of different areas. So I kind of had an interest in Irish studies just growing up as an Irish Catholic and coming from a, an extended Irish Catholic family. And so Loras has some study abroad opportunities. So I took some students to Ireland. And so I started to learn more about Ireland and do more research. And then it kind of dovetails with some of my other interests. Certainly the contrast between Irish politics and American politics is kind of fascinating for me, but also the history of both violent and nonviolent resistance to British colonialism in Irish history. So you can learn a lot about the dynamics of conflict, ethnic conflict, in particular religious conflict by studying Ireland. And so that kind of dovetails with some of my interests in religion and politics and conflict and peace studies. 
Let me ask you one more question about your, your hourly studies. I believe yeah. there, was, there was a University of Louisville history professor who made a statement that the South here in the United States was initially um, colonized by people from Ireland. A lot of Irish people came into the South. Irish people came in with a great mistrust of government. And that explains the reason why a lot of the people of Republican thought still do not trust government and more accepting of capitalism without U.S. intervention, government intervention. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point because normally when people think of Irish migration to the United States, they think about the great wave that started in the mid-19th century, the potato famine. And so that's mainly Irish Catholics who came to cities in the Northeast and Midwest, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. My family came to um, Baltimore. But before that, in the 18th century, in the 100 years leading up to the American Revolution, there was this first great wave of migration from Ireland that most people don't really associate. And they mainly were um, Irish Protestants, especially Scotch Irish Protestants from what is today Northern Ireland. Yeah. And they really came in through ports like Philadelphia, moved quickly into the back country of Pennsylvania and then down the spine of the Appalachian Mountains. And so a lot of white Southerners traced their roots to this pre-revolutionary wave of Scots-Irish immigrants. And they brought not only whiskey distilling, for example, and what is today country music and uh, the storytellings of Appalachia, which is very similar to Scottish Highlands, uh, but they also brought sort of cultural traits like a really rugged individualism, distrust of government, traits that will kind of be different than the Irish Catholics who would come later to the north, which are more communal and more common good oriented. The Scots-Irish uh, really favored individualism and frontierism and kind of a um, nonconformity, especially with government. So yeah, they, I think you're, the history professor there is absolutely right. The, the contemporary American South, especially the Appalachian regions owes a lot to these um, Irish, Scots-Irish migrants of 200 years ago. Yeah, thanks for that. Well, there's something called the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative and Pons Christi International. How does that differ, compare, or identify with religious peace organizations? Sure. So the, the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative, one of my the areas I work in is war and peace issues, of course, and especially from a Catholic perspective. And the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative is sponsored by Pax Christi, which is another Catholic uh, peace organization. And I haven't, I've been sort of a foot soldier, as it were, in this effort. Um, it's, I'm not one of the leaders, but um, I've been kind of working within it. And these organizations are Catholic in nature, so they overlap an awful lot with other religious, especially Christian peace organizations and with peace organizations, secular ones and just general peace organizations and the kind of issues they focus on, the kind of commitments they have. One of the things that sometimes differentiates Catholic from other religious, especially Protestant peace movements is more of a, a comfort with political power. A lot of especially Protestant pacifism is what is called maybe unfairly sectarian. So it's more focused on withdrawal from the world. Think about the Mennonites or the, the Amish uh, the Anabaptist tradition of kind of withdraw from a, a fallen, corrupt, violence-plagued world, whereas the Catholic tradition is more comfortable with global organizations such as the United Nations, uh, aid relief, sort of speaking in a less, sometimes are criticized by Protestants for not being as biblical-based, but more natural law-based, and they sound a lot like secular peace organizations more so than, say, a, a Mennonite or an Amish kind of um, pacifism. But there is a, mainly there's a lot of overlap, more than different. Yeah, very interesting. So let's change directions a little bit here. You have a current project in the early stages that addresses a question pacifist 
often faced, and I've heard people ask me this question on numerous occasions. That question has, has to do with, what about Hitler? If pacifism is the right answer, how would we have uh, the United States and its allies dealt with, with Hitler without engaging in war? Yeah, that is uh, anyone who's done peace work or identifies as a pacifist or who talks about peace and anti-militarism is going to get the Hitler question, uh, as I'm sure both of you know. And it's one that in my work, you know, I, I'll give a talk and someone will almost always bring it up. So I kind of decided that's something I need to start wrestling with and trying to answer. And I'm still, as I, as you indicated, I'm in the early stages. Obviously, for those of us who thought about this issue, it any question is is more complex than just, you know, the challenge. So the challenge has a lot of assumptions built into it. Uh, a lot of my students assume the United States went to World War II to stop the Holocaust, uh, and that the Allies went to World War II to stop the Holocaust, which of course isn't isn't true. It implies that not that Hitler did anything right, but that the British Empire or um, the Belgians in Congo or the United States genocide against Native Americans were somehow not similar. So uh, one of my answers is to kind of complicate the question to say that it's not all. Uh, as morally simple as people indicate, not just going to war, but also what happened in the war. You know, if you're if you're going to war to uphold human rights and you uh, burn 100,000 civilians in one night in Tokyo with incendiary bombs, does that really indicate that you're fighting justly uh, or you're fighting in a just cause? So just complicating the question, but also trying to do a lot of research on whether in cases in which nonviolence was in fact effective against Nazism and against Hitler, both before and during World War II, and if we were going to mobilize tens of thousands, millions of people, entire economies, and make all this effort to fight a war, could similar efforts be used to stop the kind of um, injustice that led to World War II in the first place? So trying to find ways that, in fact, nonviolence does, did have the potential, if we had actually tried it, to respond to the rise of Nazism and, and its militarism. But it, like, you, like you said, it's very early, and I'm just sort of experimenting and trying to learn. Turns out there's a lot written about World War II. <laughs> And they're all 600-page books. Yeah, I have a friend who, Dr. Judy Monroe-Layton, who made the point that the Treaty of Versailles was really a horrific, unfair settlement of World War One. Really unfair to the German country, nation, and Hitler used that in his quest to become prime minister, and it worked. So I guess maybe you, if you make the statement that uh, if the Treaty of Versailles had been fair to Germany, perhaps World War II would have never happened. And the other thing, some people might call you a revisionist if, if you make that statement, but still the facts are there. And, and the other thing that, that could, have, could have happened, the Nazis early on gave permission to the Jewish community in Germany, some six million Jews. If you move in mass, immigrate to another country, we'll let you do that. United States, none of his allies would accept six million Jews. So had they accepted that J Jewish migration in mass, perhaps those Jews would still be alive, would have never had to gone through the Holocaust. So that may have changed things. There's always economic sanctions that could have been applied. Germany came out of World War I in a, in a terrible economic situation. And what the Allies demanded reparations, reparations that Germany could not afford. It took away all their shipping, one-tenth of their land mass, so reparations applied against the Nazi regime may very well have prevented the Nazis in Germany from creating the massive military that they were able to construct. So those are steps that may very well have prevented World War II. Yeah, that's very true. The short answer to how to prevent World War II is don't fight World War One. 
and there were a lot of pacifists right. before World War I who argued one of the largest peace movements in American history was the opposition to the U.S. joining World War I. So no World War I, there's no Hitler, there's no World War II. And once World War II starts, yeah, you're right, most countries, the vast majority of countries, refuse to accept any Jewish refugees before and during the Second World War. Um, I think the Dominican Republic was the only country that's um, openly said, yeah, we'll take some. But most yeah. importantly is the only way the Nazis could, in fact, carry out the mass murder of Jews or uh, even de deportations is with local cooperation. So non-resistance in countries where there was nonviolent resistance, such as Bulgaria and Denmark, no no Jews in those countries were, were deported or, you know, a tiny handful. Whereas countries where there was active cooperation from locals, such as Hungary or Romania, then they were successful. So without the cooperation of civilians and locals, the Nazis could not have carried out their project. So that's one of the areas where nonviolent, non-cooperation, in fact, was effective during World War II. It just wasn't practiced widely enough. Yeah, good point. So was, in, uh, in Germany that the cooperation happened, but in Denmark and Bulgaria, like you said, and some in well, France and in uh, some in Germany were uh, nonviolent resistors and they protected Jews and, and uh, kept them. Yeah, very. even some of Hitler's closest allies, like the Italians, never really cooperated. They would always say, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. And then um, so most Jews in Italy also survived uh, until at least the Nazis took over Italy and uh, were able to round up some, unfortunately. Yeah, there, there was the Sinner's List thing mm -hmm. that protected a lot of, lot of Jews. Right. And the famous network of villages in France, in the Alps, run mainly by Protestant um, pacifist pastors that was a refuge for lots of Jews surrounded by occupied France. Okay. Okay. So pacifists are having a pretty tough time in the U.S. and around the world. Does your research for the what about Hitler question have any bearing on your thoughts about recent demonstrations in the U.S. concerning recent peace demonstrations, civil violence, uh, citizens' violence, political brutalities, killings? What about now? Yeah, sure. Uh, you're certainly right that pacifists are having a, a rough time. They, they, it's not unusual. Doctrinaire pacifists have largely always been, you know, a minority voice in a lot of conversations, though there's growing support for the use of nonviolent techniques, not just by pacifists, but by those who maybe don't identify as pacifists, but are generally peace-oriented, justice-oriented, and see nonviolent civil resistance techniques as being both more humane, more just, and more effective than uh, violent techniques. So you don't have to be a pacifist to embrace nonviolence. And that's one of the things I think you see around the world today from the streets of the United States to uh, Belarus um, and, and other places where the, the power of people in the streets, of civil resistance, of demonstrations, nonviolent, um, non-cooperation can have a big impact on social change. It's not a guarantee by any means. And the line between violence and nonviolence can get blurry sometimes. Some nonviolent movements can have a violent edge, as, they, as scholars call it. But I think you're seeing actually the potential of nonviolent mobilization and civil resistance around the world in more and more places, which I find hopeful. They're responding to some pretty grim realities of the world, which can be depressing. But the fact that people are mobilizing to resist those grim realities, I think, is, is hopeful in many ways. Yeah. The violence that's attributed to the, the many peace markers can uh, protest here and concerned, of course, with organizers of the protests. How should that violence be approached or addressed or counteracted by the peace activists trying to, to make the point of how effective peace protests can be? Yeah, that's a good question. It's always been a, a strategic dilemma for movement leaders when it comes to um, a, a largely nonviolent kind of 
uh, protest movement. I think one thing to keep in mind is that oftentimes in the media, when people call a protest violent, sometimes it's actually what I would call destructive. So in other words, you might have a protest where there's some rioting or even some destruction of property. That is different than a movement that is targeting human beings for physical violence. Uh, So oftentimes the violence directed towards human beings is actually coming from uh, police or other law enforcement responding to nonviolent protests. So you can have a nonviolent protest, a destructive protest, and a violent protest. I think there's different kinds. What we're seeing uh, in the United States certainly is almost exclusively nonviolence or overwhelmingly nonviolent. In some cases, there has been property destruction by members of the protests. And unfortunately, in some cases, there has been violence directed towards the police or others by some protesters or opportunists who enjoy street violence and show up for these kinds of things. But most of the violence, of course, has been by police and law enforcement towards uh, the protesters themselves, even though I would say in global perspective, the levels of destruction and violence by both sides has been uh, really low compared to disorders that we normally see in other parts of the world and in the history of the United States as well. So they're largely nonviolent protests, though there are some um, destructive elements to it, and unfortunately around the edges, some some violence itself. As for the question of what leaders should do, this has always been a dilemma, is if you're going to have a largely nonviolent movement, how do you exercise enough discipline? Cesar Chavez talked a lot about this, is how do you exercise discipline among your followers to prevent even some small acts of violence that then dominate the news? So I think people who organize a protest know the optics are really important. And if you have a exclusively nonviolent, non-destructive protest, that's what will get shown on the news. But if you have a nonviolent, non-destructive protest with a few acts of overturning a car and setting it on fire, that's what's going to play on the news. So strategically, leaders really struggle to maintain enough discipline to keep the optics of their movement uh, most effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, well, there's there's political leadership also in this country, particularly uh, recently associated with violence as a as a reason to oppose, you know, peaceful rallies and 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 doing so in the press and even political election advertising. You, how should the one peacefully respond to that kind of political leadership? Yeah, that's and that's always been a um, a dilemma for social movements, civil resistance is. There are those who you're resisting, who want to keep the status quo, who will spread half-truths or complete falsehoods about your movement. Uh, If you think back to the civil rights movement, the kind of things that were said at the time about Martin Luther King, about the nonviolent protesters, you know, we teach in schools King's letter from Birmingham jail. But if you recall, that letter was in response to some criticisms of his movement as being too radical, as encouraging violence, as as being um, too quick, not being patient enough. So there's always going to be those voices. Hopefully we just overcome them, know they're going to be inevitable, and respond as, as creatively and with truth power, as Gandhi said, Satyagraha, with truth power as much as possible. So what is the vision and practice of active nonviolence of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative? Sure. So the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative is one organization within the larger Catholic family that's trying to bring more attention to nonviolence um, in Catholic teaching. And the church itself, certainly since the Second Vatican Council of the mid-1960s, has really emphasized nonviolence at all levels. So whether it's alternatives to war within the global system, sanctions, arbitration, development, 
democratization, forces that are associated with reduction of war, but also with praising and trying to support those who use nonviolence as an alternative to political oppression or foreign occupation. So supporting nonviolent protesters, the solidarity movement, for example, in Poland with La Cloenza, uh, sprung directly from um, many Catholic organizations and, and Catholic ideas. It took solidarity, which is an important Catholic justice idea as its title. So there really has been a, a, a big change, frankly, in the way Catholicism views war and peace issues in the 20th century to really come down on abolishing war and instead using nonviolent alternatives to address the problems that countries traditionally have turned to war to solve. Thomas Aquinas, he was an Italian Dominican friar, right? Philosopher, Catholic priest, and what is called a doctor of the church. He was an influential philosopher, theologian, and jurist in the tradition of scholasticism for the church and others. He was also known for the Catholic teaching in the Catholic church called just war. Eventually became a doctrine. There was obviously been some, or has been uh, some opposition to it, those in the church and outside the church. But give us a sense of how the doctrine originated and historically, and, and w- would you share with us how it's considered officially by the church today? Sure. So the just war tradition or just war doctrine uh, goes back a long way in the Catholic Church. There's also other religious traditions of it, like Islam, for example, and there's secular versions of just war tradition or just war teaching. It kind of goes back. So the earliest Christians were mainly pacifist, rejecting war, rejecting participation in war. But by around 300 with the Emperor Constantine, as Christianity became more associated with the empire, with political power, You had thinkers such as St. Anselm and especially St. Augustine develop these ideas of a just war, not to say war is always acceptable, but under certain conditions, it is righteous, just, acceptable to go to war. And then with Aquinas and other thinkers such as um, Vittoria and uh, Hugo Grotius, you have a, a fleshing out of this tradition, usually meaning there's two sides to it. Usually the first is under what conditions can you go to war? Is there a just cause? Do you have the right intention? Is it a last resort? These kinds of things. And then the actual rules of fighting the war. Are you distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants? Are you using only enough force as is necessary? Are you avoiding civilian massacres or certain kinds of weapons or destroying crops? Uh, These kinds of things. So that's how it grew up, it became the central teaching of the Catholic Church as well as others up until about the mid 20th century, where now it's a very ambiguous kind of tradition within the Catholic teaching. In many ways, it still exists, at least in theory, but the way popes and other Catholic leaders have interpreted it is to be much, much more strict to where, as Pope Benedict once said, it's an open question to whether any war can actually meet these criteria. The realities of war might not actually fit into the just war doctrine. And that, along with the growth of of celebrating nonviolence, means the church is still, at least on paper, says, yeah, the just war tradition is is legitimate, but in practice rarely praises any war and generally condemns specific wars and war in general. Okay. So how does the Just War Declaration initiative address international events and concerns in world conflicts today? So traditionally, the Just War framework was 
both an attempt to restrain states from making war, uh, but also to allow them to make war. That's one of the, the paradoxes. So in some ways, the just war tradition is saying, no, that you can't launch a war for this or this or this. You can only do so when, say, you're being attacked or when you need to overturn some kind of, of wrong. But in many ways, it becomes, for many leaders, kind of a blank check. Oh, a just war is, is acceptable, so I can come up with plausible sounding reasons to invade this country I want to invade anyway. So one of the criticisms was while it may have been designed to restrain war, minimize war, reduce its effects and its violence, it in fact uh, kind of legitimizes it in the public mind. The framework that it grew up in is states are sovereign, they pursue their own interests, and war is a normal part of state behavior. It's a normal part of statecraft. That, fortunately, I think has eroded in international law as well as in the Catholic tradition in the 20th century to where we don't, most of us don't consider war as just a normal part of what states can and should do. Most just war theorists say it's only under exceptional circumstances that states should resort to war. And then, of course, pacifists would argue that there is no circumstances that justify a resort to war. Reinhold Niebuhr would disagree, but so within that context, Dr. Cochran, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount states, quote, it is written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say it unto you, love thy neighbor as thyself. Turn the other cheek, love thy enemy, end quote. The A.B. Attitude states, quote, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God, end quote. So the Christian leadership explains that these two proclamations are guiding principles of Christian church. So how is the church's just war doctrine justified in light of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, that's a great question. That's one of the, the dilemmas that the early just war theorists had to kind of get around, as it were, what are often called the hard sayings of Jesus. And certainly Christians have um, had centuries to figure out ways to get around the plain teaching of the gospel. That's been one of the criticisms of, of many of Christianity, right? What did uh, Gandhi say? Christianity would be great if someone actually tried it um, kind of idea, right? Um, the way St. Augustine, for example, got around the, the demand, the central command to love that Jesus gave to Christians was he argued that war could be an act of love, ironically speaking. He said that if uh, a soldier or a, a country goes to war out of hatred or greed, then it is wrong. Uh, that war is unjust. But if a country uh, or a, a soldier or a leader goes to war in order to protect the common good, to protect the innocent, then it's a form of love, even towards those who you're making war against. He used the example of a parent and a child, where a parent sometimes has to punish a child. She does it out of love, not out of hatred or out of um, vengeance. Uh, when a parent says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, Augustine said sometimes they actually mean that. So he thought that war is a form of punishment of wrongdoing, and you can punish out of a loving understanding, which is why actually it's kind of interesting. St. Augustine said, you can never kill someone in individual self-defense. If someone attacks you, tries to steal your goods or take your life, it's selfish to respond with violence to protect your own life. That's not loving. But he said when a country goes to war to protect citizens from a wrongdoer, that actually for him is an act of love. Um, it's selflessness. You're risking your own life in a war to protect those you love. And so 
Um, that's why for many people today, it's kind of weird that he said you can't kill an individual self-defense, that's unchristian, but you can go to war because war can be an act of love. Now, many people, of course, at the time and certainly today said it's kind of strange to say I love you while I'm making war on you and killing you, but for Augustine, that was how he got around the, the Beatitudes. Today, Pope Francis even uh, most recently had a, um, a really thoughtful statement on nonviolence a few years ago where he called the Beatitudes, which, Jim, you just quoted, as kind of the manual, he called it, for Christian engagement. And so part of the repudiation of the just war tradition is re, redefining or rediscovering um, the meaning of the Beatitudes and uh, the commandment to love, the scandalous commandment of Christians to love their enemies. Yeah, we see that, uh, that argument today, I think, by countries that, that invade other countries uh, in the sense that uh, we're, we're loving you, or at least some of you, in order mm -hmm. to wage war on... <laughs> right. Uh, we're here to save you, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And we had to destroy the village to save it in that uh, famous Vietnam saying, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, on the Just War Declaration topic, you have written a piece for the magazine Just Review. It's titled on Killing Soldiers. Was it legitimate to shoot uh, Joseph Ratzinger during World War II? What is your central question for this article, and what's your answer? Sure. So uh, one of the, the things that I've worked on, and I, I develop it more in the, the book, uh, Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War, is the reason many people object to war, rightly so, is that it kills so many innocent civilians, non-combatants, right? And World War II is no exception. Most of the people killed in World War II were not soldiers, not combatants. But one of the things that I um, have been exploring, and others certainly have too, is whether why... And we see it right to kill soldiers in a war, because in many ways we also consider ordinary soldiers, foot soldiers, to be innocent, which is why if they're captured after war, we don't put them on trial and we let them go, and why if they surrender, they have full rights. They're seen as not causing the war, they're not responsible for it, even if they're fighting on the wrong side, uh, they're innocent in some important ways. And so that's why I use Joseph Ratzinger, who would go on to become Pope Benedict XVI of the Catholic Church, in um, World War II, he was on the wrong side. He fought in Hitler's army, uh, but he only fought in Hitler's army because he was drafted as a 15-year-old in the last months of the war when they were rounding up any kids they could find. They gave him a rifle. They put him at an anti-aircraft gun, but he was a legitimate target. So one of my answers is if it's wrong to kill innocent people, and the Catholic tradition says that very clearly, then why can you drop a bomb on a 15-year-old child draftee who had no, who objected to the war, just wanted to be over and deserted as soon as he could. So I kind of use him as an example of what I consider innocent soldiers who are legitimate targets in war and are in fact many of the victims of war. Even if you don't kill any civilians at all, you still say there's this huge category of people who I can kill at any time in their sleep with a bomb, yet in many ways we also consider them innocent, consider them victims. So that's one of the paradoxes I was trying to explore by using Joseph Ratzinger, who um, fought in that World War II, which is the quintessential good war. He was on the bad side, but I, I struggle to see how you could kill a, kill a child as part of that war. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Cochran, uh, Jushim Mbello uh, defines standards by which a country can conduct war, and the actions during the war should be uh, just and fair, as defined by the Catholic Church. Just war doctrine. What's the foundation of Jushim Mbello? The structure. 
Yeah, so the, the origins of Yusin Bello have to do with once you're in a war, you still should fight it justly. So it kind of, some of the origins go back to codes of chivalry among knights who would say, well, we have to fight a fair fight or excluding certain people from a war, trying to control the effects of war. So the idea is that you might be on the right side of a war, say you're fighting a war for a just cause to protect against an invasion, but you can fight unjustly if you massacre civilians, for example. And you can have someone like Joseph Ratzinger uh, and ordinary Nazi soldiers or soldiers in the Nazi army who were certainly on the wrong side of a war, perhaps, but also fought justly in the sense that they only targeted legitimate targets. One of the things the tensions in the Catholic Church has developed, again, especially in the past 75 years, say, is these things might make sense in theory, but in practice, we know that wars are never neat and clean, and um, the rules always get violated, and there's always ways to justify the mass killing of civilians, for example. So that's one of the reasons why, kind of similar to the death penalty, where the Catholic Church used to accept the death penalty, but today doesn't. The evolution of the doctrine was towards, in practice, can this actually be met? And so a lot of the condemnation of war from the Catholic tradition certainly has been on this use in bello, the routine killing of civilians, the environmental destruction, all the, the violence and suffering that war unleashes. Even if theoretically you might have a good reason to go to war, say, preventing a humanitarian disaster or a genocide. In reality, it's not very effective and you end up killing a lot of innocent people. So maybe Yusin Bello is not something that can actually be achieved in practice. Hmm. Through to, to early American history in, in terms of the duel, you know, you fought that fairly. Uh, right. And uh, so what does that have to do with self-defense? Yeah, so uh, one of my areas of research is other forms of institutionalized violence that we've managed to abolish, or at least largely abolish, and the duel is one of them. The duel used to be seen as, for you know, a period of four or 500 years in many countries, as um, inevitable, the, uh, the only method available to men in particular uh, to defend themselves or the honor of their families, especially women and under their uh, protection, as it were. So yeah, the duel was understood as a fundamental way to defend one's honor um, using a set of rules that are kind of like you in bello. Um, it's not just I'm going to ambush someone. It's we follow these, these rules to make sure the, fair, the, the, the fight is fair. And it was designed to restrain the vendetta system. So the vendetta system was similar, but it involved a lot more indiscriminate violence against family members, battling in the streets, so the idea is let's come up with a more controlled form of violence that people can defend themselves and their honor, uh, but without it spilling over into um, endless cycles of violence such as vendettas. Today we find that absurd, right? So if um, Jim and Jamie, you all uh, today felt during this interview that one of you had insulted the other, it would be absurd if tomorrow morning you met you know, outside, you know, in a public park and started shooting at each other. But for a lot of, for centuries, that was just accepted, you know. Uh, Andrew Jackson, from your neck of the woods, fought duels all the time, right? It was just something that, that people did, or men uh, did. So, yeah, that idea of what we understand to be necessary for self-defense really changes over time. Um, what people took seriously 200 years ago, we find comical today. And so the hope is we, some, some of us or some people think war is necessary for self-defense, but maybe someday we'll look back and say, why on earth did people do these absurd things in the name of self-defense? The, the duel 
is almost a sense of respect for the other. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that, that kind of fits in there. Right. It definitely had an, an honor code and some really, really detailed rules. There were whole books written about the dueling, dueling manuals and the rules you had to follow. There's a whole song in Hamilton, the musical, about the, the rules of dueling. <laughs> yeah. So let's discuss passivism just briefly here. So the historian Mark Kolansky, in his book, Nonviolence, A History of a Dangerous Idea, points out that in ancient Rome, Christians were pacifist, and they remained pacifist for, from the ascension of Jesus in 39 AD till a military conflict that occurred between Constantine and the Roman emperor Maximilius some 300 years later. So in 339 AD, Constantine made a deal with Christian leadership. If the Christians would agree to join his army, and if Constantine defeated Maximilius, then Constantine would not only declare Christianity legal, it was illegal up until that time, he would build churches so Christians could practice their religion in the open. The Christians agreed, to the, and they gave up their pacifist idea, and they joined Constantine's army. So Constantine won the battle, and true to his word, he declared Christianity legal, and he used the taxes from Roman citizens to build Christian churches. That deal established an efficacious relationship between the church and the state. So by the time St. Augustine issued his Just War Doctrine in 430 AD, many Christians had already rebuffed their pacifist ideology. Historians like Andrew Preston, in his book, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, believe that this relationship between the church and the state exists today, as evidenced by the fact that U.S. political leadership almost always declares anytime they're ready to go to war, God is on our side when they're attempting to convince the American populace that it's once again time to wage war. The Catholic just war doctrine is an awfully convenient way of maintaining that efficacious relationship between the church, even during times of war. What do you say to that, Dr. Cochran? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a very good point. I'll start with a, um, an image. Let's say you have a, a bowl of delicious vanilla ice cream in one hand and a bowl of cow manure in the other hand, and then you mix them together. Uh, the cow manure, pretty much the same as it was, but your ice cream is ruined, right? So some people use that to talk about religion and politics, right? If, if religion is your bowl of ice cream and politics is your cow manure, mixing them together isn't going to change politics. It's still going to be the way it is, uh, but it's certainly going to corrupt religion. So a lot of pacifists look at the Constantine fall, as they call it, as when religion, Christianity in particular, got too seduced by political power. So the, the Christians before that, who were pacifist, were much more pure in their, their beliefs. It didn't stop them from being powerful. Uh, Christianity spread and inspired many, but they weren't powerful the same way an empire is powerful by using force and violence. It, it was powerful by its witness, right? Uh, but once they became reconciled with political power, especially the, the dirty business of empire running, then you got to come up with a justification for empire running, which is war and violence. And so that's why many um, Christian pacifists like the Mennonites, the Anabaptists, like the, the, uh, um, the Amish, or Christian anarchists like Tolstoy kind of point to Christianity and, and Constantine weakening itself, watering itself down and corrupting itself in ways that we see with the alliance of, of corrupt power and political imagery. And they advocate instead getting back to that more pure idea of the early Christians to 
witness a different way of life, not the, the way of life of, of empire building and empire maintaining through war. Well stated. You've written for uh, the website that's uh, familiar to us, web, uh, Waging Nonviolence. It's uh, in that article you write about the philosopher uh, Eucydides, uh, who wrote the following, quote, Peace is merely an armistice in a war that is continually going on. That's an end quote. You also quote Margaret Mead, who said war is only an invention, not a biological necessity. How do you respond to Thucydides and, and Margaret Mead? Sure. I, um, I'm uh, definitely on the Mead side of that debate, right? So there's, there's always been this question of why human beings fight wars. One side of the coin often is it's somehow inevitable to the human condition. There will always be war. General Sherman said objecting to war is like objecting to thunderstorms. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's just it's the way the world is. And so Thucydides <laughs> kind of basically says human beings will always fight wars. It's always happened. And anytime you have peace, it's just a pause. Whereas Margaret Mead kind of represents the other idea that human beings don't need to fight wars. And in fact, war is something we invented. Um, it wasn't always part of the human condition. Um, she argued that we didn't used to fight wars way back in our hunter-gatherer days in particular. But in, at some point we invented it, which means we can give it up, that it's not rooted somehow biologically in the human condition, um, that it's something we invented just like dueling or slavery, that we existed before we invented it and we can get rid of it and, and go on much better without it. So I definitely come down on Margaret Mead's side of that debate. So, Dr. Cochran, you, you made the point that historical, the historical times of Aquinas and, and other just war thinkers, that a just and peaceful order made slavery necessary. How do you validate that statement to the Black Lives Movement that's now occurring across the nation? Sure, yeah. I think one of the interesting things in my research on the way historically people have justified war is that it was the same language was used to justify other forms of institutionalized violence that we don't consider legitimate today. So St. Augustine justified war as a, a necessary given the fallen world of sin, but he also justified slavery using the same terms. And in the, the book that I wrote, I have a whole chapter on the historical justifications of chattel slavery that were almost word for word the same justifications we hear for war both then and today. So I would say to, to anyone who thinks about racial injustice and overcoming the legacies of slavery is that the similar process can exist for war. That's why I'm, a, I'm an abolitionist when it comes to war, just like abolitionists wanted to end chattel slavery. So, you know, folks who are leading Black Lives Matter movement certainly know better than anyone the, how deep the, the justifications of white supremacy and the justifications of um, racial domination and slavery go. They go all the way back to the ancient world, the same way the justifications for war go. So I see the justifications for uh, racial and ethnic and religious uh, persecution are very much tied up with the historical justifications for violence because they always went hand in hand. You mentioned form of institutional violence prominent in American history. To share with us that uh, what what that means and, and how uh, has it has it has it ended? Yeah. So some of the examples that I use in uh, in addition to uh, dueling and trial by ordeal and combat, especially in Europe, uh, in the American case would be chattel slavery, which of course is part of a global institution. But I also look at lynching 
and the way it evolved, sort of how it arose as a tool of racial oppression and racial control, um, and then how it waned, not that it went away, um, much like chattel slavery kind of morphed into other forms of oppression. But lynching was late 19th century up to the early 20th century, a, a very, not just widespread, but publicly accepted, publicly celebrated, publicly attended kind of form of institutionalized violence. I mean, there are examples of schools letting out early so kids could attend the lynching. Ice cream vendors would set up stalls. They'd charter special trains to bring in spectators from the surrounding countryside. So it was a, a scheduled, publicly celebrated part of a, a festive atmosphere, a, a day of celebration, and there, there would be a lynching. So even though racial violence certainly hasn't disappeared, these forms that used to, we, we at least uh, white Americans, used to accept as just, hey, this is just the way it goes, and were defended in terms very, very similar to war, in terms of community self-defense, keeping order, uh, these kinds of things, that if we can overcome, at least largely, these kinds of forms, uh, whether it's the duel, the vendetta, chattel slavery, or public lynching, or trials by our dealer combat, then we can also overcome overcome war. We can still have a world that has plenty of problems, we just don't have to fight wars about them. So you mentioned uh, similar forms. How how do you approach those? How do you work against those peacefully? Yeah, so um, it's difficult. Usually most forms of institutionalized violence, which we have um, largely done away with, um, is a gradual process. You have to find alternatives. So the trial by ordeal or combat was eventually replaced by um, jury trials in the Anglo-American world or civil civil kind of law in the uh, in the Napoleonic Code. It usually takes activists chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, trying to call attention to the evils of these institutions. Uh, at first, they're, they're dismissed as a small group of, of radicals, the early abolitionists, for example. But eventually, they're able to change enough minds, change customs, and gradually have new forms of, of ways of dealing with things. So like dueling, it used to be seen as the only way you could solve a dispute between certain social classes. But as we had things like libel law come in, or um, professional associations that would control members' behavior, or even some historians say the rise of amateur sports such as rugby in, in England allowed young males to beat up on each other in ways that they didn't have to duel. So usually you get some kind of alternatives that come up as well as a change in public consciousness uh, brought about by the really patient long-term work of activists. Well, you point out too that the spread of democracy and the rule of law, as you were talking about, the rise of nonviolent direct action movements and, and the economic development have all contributed to to war's decline, what evidence then would you provide to support that view? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that people who study the long-term trends in war have found is that, generally speaking, it has been on the decline. Just like any long-term trend, there's bumps up and down, so it's not as smooth and even. But if you measure the number of wars, the battle deaths that happen in wars, both in absolute terms, but certainly per capita, there's just fewer wars with fewer casualties around the world today or in the past, say, 20 years than um, historically. It doesn't seem that way when we watch the news, um, but generally speaking, so for example, there are no, there are no active wars in the uh, Western Hemisphere currently. So the entire Western Hemisphere does not have, um, as researchers define it, an ongoing war since the, the Civil War in Colombia was settled. That doesn't mean there's not lots of violence and poverty and oppression and other problems, but there's 
large parts of the world that just aren't fighting wars and they're better off for it. So part of the, the study is seeing the decline, uh, again, with bumps up and down with the Syrian war. There has been a bump in the number of casualties around the world uh, because of the, the, the length and intensity of that war. But also even more difficult is trying to figure out why this might be. Is it just an accident? Are we going to, is it going to go the other way eventually? Or are there certain global factors that have reduced the risk of a particular country going to war? And yeah, the big one is economic development. Uh, the richer a country becomes, the less likely it is to go to war. Now, the United States, unfortunately, is a uh, uh, an outlier. We're both rich and, and particularly warlike. But generally speaking, growth in per capita GDP is associated with a lower risk of war. And so is uh, democratization. Uh, democracies will often fight wars against non-democracies, but democracies rarely fight wars against other democracies. So as more countries have become democracies, there's just been fewer occasions for them to go to war with each other. Scholars don't know exactly why that is. There's lots of theories, but generally speaking, democratization, once a country becomes a mature, stable democracy, the risk of war goes down. Again, the United States, uh, perhaps an exception to that. And then the last thing, the biggest thing that's led to a decline of war is that there's really very few cases anymore of state-on-state -state war, war between two or more separate countries. Most wars today we have are civil wars, which can be terrible, but they tend to be smaller, not sort of great power wars that we used to have between large military powers taking on each other. That, that just killed a lot more people. So the fact that we don't have interstate war nearly as much as we used to, it's been a very dramatic decline since the Second World War. That has really led to um, an overall decline in the number of wars and people who are killed in wars around the world. Again, that's kind of the good news. We tend to focus on where that isn't true, Syria, other parts of the Middle East, Central Africa. But generally speaking, things have gotten better when it comes to war uh, globally. Yeah, the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker his book, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, agrees with you. The wars between nations have greatly diminished, and he contributes that to the trade that is occurring between nations now. Instead of going to war to get what you want, you can obtain those goods and services through trade. So, um, exactly. Yeah, then that, that results in a decline in war. Is there evidence that maybe uh, some economic factors like Pinker points out, could also contribute to a decline of domestic violence, uh, more gun control regulation? Yeah, there's also been, um, and that's one of the examples of where uh, you kind of have mixed results, right? So his research, I think, is correct that more international trade has led to a decline of, of armed conflict between states. The downside of perhaps more global trade has been more economic inequality or environmental destruction from from capitalist development. So it's not always an unmitigated good. The yeah. same things that can lead to a decline of war can also cause other problems. But yeah, I think he's right about long-term trends in violence are not inevitable. In other words, uh, violence is not inevitable, or at least the levels of violence are not inevitable. So while war has declined for various reasons, many countries, including the U.S., have managed to bring their homicide rate down through various measures, through economic development, through the spread of of alternatives to violence. So, you know, getting rid of the duel, for example, helped. So there's a mix of factors. The United States has a higher homicide rate than it would otherwise because of um, there's guns present in so many interpersonal conflicts. There's, there just happens to be a gun at hand. And so our homicide rate is much higher than it would be because of the presence of guns. But it's still declined over time as it has in other countries uh, due to larger social and economic factors. So we can 
reduce levels of violence effectively, maybe not to zero, but certainly we can make progress by adopting social changes and social policy. What are, what are some of those policies and, that you would suggest would, would make that difference? Well, certainly uh, when the case of firearms, um, effective gun control, most other countries have found that if you don't have nearly as many guns just at hand when, when conflicts break out, you're going to have a lot fewer people shot. So that's one of the largest things we can do. Um, certainly things like uh, reducing poverty can help. Things like um, empowerment of women. So in societies where women have uh, more status, more opportunity, more political power, higher education rates, higher literacy rates, uh, you see a reduction of interpersonal violence. Um, so those kinds of things are, are things you can adopt, but also just the spread of, of social manners where, it, as I said, several hundred years ago, um, an insult between people in a conversation like this could lead to, to a duel, and today it doesn't. So we just, as human beings, we learn to deal with, with conflict in different ways. So the more we can spread nonviolent conflict resolution, teaching it in schools, practicing it among ourselves, the more you reduce the rate of interpersonal violence. Yeah, you made the point that women do have an effect, and David Hinker makes that point also, was gun control laws, judges coming into the Old West, and women coming into the Old West that diminished the violence that was occurring in the Old West, like some 15,000 per 100,000 people getting shot as a result of, of the violence of cowboys coming in off of cattle drives with their guns uh, attached to their hips and getting drunk on the weekends and getting, that was, that really was what was going on in the Old West, and women uh, would not put up with that kind of behavior, and they, they diminished the, the violence that, that was occurring in those days. So that's an excellent point there. Would you attribute that to women's more concern about family than, uh, than perhaps men? I'm not sure, actually. I, I don't know what the mechanism is other than the trend that the more equal uh, women are in a society, the, the, the less violent it becomes. It could go along with other trends such as just better education for everyone or a higher economic standard of living for everyone. So I struggle with sort of are there fundamental differences between men and women when it comes to violence? Certainly many violent societies include an honor code among young men that will fight duels or vendettas, for example or will go to war. And so the more empowered women are in a society, it kind of changes the tone of that society. And for whatever reason, de-emphasizes male-on-male violence, but also male-on-female violence. So women who are more empowered have more options when it comes to maybe being in a relationship with a, with a, a violent man. Yeah, yeah. The, the historian Walter Hickson points out that the term honor, the term esprit de corps, is a male concept. Women are not interested in fighting for their honor. So, and it's a term that is currently used in just about every military commercial that you see on TV. And that still has an effect on the thinking, especially our young people who are considering whether or not to, to join the military. Yeah, a lot of historians say that part of the, the decline of interpersonal violence over time is when a society shifts from, uh, especially the males in a society, shift from an honor code to a dignity code, where if your chief value is honor and protecting your honor and looking for insults to your honor, then you're going to get a lot more um, physical disputes. But if your uh, chief uh, concern is being dignified, behaving in a dignified way and, and sort of keeping your cool, remaining calm, that sort of then reduces the opportunity for you to look for um, insults and, and need to, to uh, respond to them violently. Absolutely. 
our broadcast time, uh, Dr. Cochran. Uh, in closing, would you suggest uh, authors or readings or lectures uh, or other sources for our listeners that they can access for exploring some of the ideas we've, we've talked about today? Yeah, sure. So some of the things that have just come to mind, um, I always recommend a book called Why Civil Resistance Works. Some of your listeners might already be familiar with it. It's by um, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. And it is a really powerful, comprehensive um, analysis of violence versus nonviolence as a way to resist oppression, um, occupation, dictatorship. Uh, and they, they find in very compelling ways that nonviolent civil resistance is much more effective than violence. So I always recommend why civil resistance works. The films Bringing Down a Dictator or A Force More Powerful uh, these are both documentaries about ex, um, successful nonviolent resistance movements. So I would always recommend Bringing Down a Dictator or A Force More Powerful as documentaries. Earlier, uh, Jimmy mentioned Stephen Pinker's Better Angels Are Nature. I think that's uh, pretty good. Uh, an awesome book um, called The Internationalists by uh, Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro looks at the evolution of international law since World War II and part of this decline of interstate war, war between separate countries. So it's a really fascinating history of the decline of war and some of the forces behind that decline of war. And then finally, um, there's a book called Blueprint for Revolution by one of the leaders of the Otpor movement in Serbia. I can't pronounce his first name, but his last name is Popovic. Uh, so mm -hmm. Popovic's Blueprint for Revolution is a, a very accessible look at nonviolent uh, techniques. Oh, and then I guess I would also recommend, especially from the Catholic perspective, every January, uh, the Pope and the Catholic Church issues a day of peace message. And they're usually on a different theme on nonviolence or uh, disarmament or environmental protection or um, reducing domestic violence. Um, and so those are usually pretty short, two or three pages, uh, and they're all available on the, the Vatican's website. So if you just browse through some of the Pope's International Day of Peace messages or World Peace Day messages, those um, can really um, share a lot for Catholics and non-Catholics alike about the way peace can spring from many of the world's most pressing problems. So those would be some of the things that come to mind. Okay. So our conversation today with Dr. David Cochran has come to an end. We're just out of time. We appreciate you joining us as we explore more solutions to violence. Thank you once again, Dr. Cochran, for joining us today here on Forward Radio. It's my pleasure. I've had a ball. I, I would love talking about this stuff. I'll do so anytime, anyplace. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring Dr. David Cochran will be placed in our archives September 23rd. Please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same.